0: Yama, Mali Nagaya. From Mamma Mia, I'm Gamilaroy and Dangari woman Mali Silva, and you're listening to Titters for Titters, the podcast where we share stories from excellent Indigenous women. Tiddar means sister, and in this podcast, you'll get to hear the stories of a handful of our deadliest Indigenous sisters who are out there changing the world one day at a time. The sporting world is a kind of holy place in Australian culture. With loyal worshippers and a stage that holds the power to make or break heroes, there's little else that sees Aussies get as passionate for anything like they do sport. For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it's also where we've had a significant amount of success throughout history. And in fact, the professional sporting arena is an area where we really punch above our weight, representing well above population parity across many codes at the highest level. But this by no means puts sports institutions as the shining examples of inclusion and diversity. One only needs to recall the horrors faced by AFL legend and Aboriginal man, Adam Goods in the final years of his career, or even the relentless misogyny directed at AFLW League player Taylor Harris online, to know success in a sporting field doesn't make an individual immune to racism or gender-based discrimination. There's work to be done, and thankfully, The sport of AFL has a strong, resilient Torres Strait Islander woman who has dedicated her life to increasing the number of opportunities and bettering the experiences of Indigenous people and women. Her name is Tanya Hosh, and she's driving change to build a stronger, more welcoming sporting community for all. In this episode, I sit down with Tanya to hear about the journey that led to her being appointed the first ever Indigenous person and second ever woman in an executive position at the AFL where she remains today as their inaugural General Manager of Inclusion and Social Policy. Tanya's passion is infectious. She will never stop fighting to end racism and to strive for the same level of respect in women's sport as is held for men's. And to my utter surprise, she almost had this devout NRL supporter ready to switch codes. We start every single episode with the same question, which is what's your name, who's your mob, and where are you from?
1: Okay, so Tanya Hosh. um, I live in Adelaide on Ghana country, um, but I'm adopted, and my natural father, Torres Strait Islander, and natural mother from. Wales. um, Adopted when I was three weeks old. So conceived in Melbourne, born in Adelaide and adopted into a family with an Aboriginal father who is a Darug man and a non-Indigenous white mother.
0: Wow. So you have ties. You're quite, you know, continental (laughs) spread out. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. Growing up, I guess a lot of uh, Aboriginal kids end up in care or are adopted out in, the, in that sense. But that's a real um, benefit that you have in an Aboriginal adopted father as well. Um, how was your, I mean, even though you're a Torres Strait Islander, how does that impact your identity growing up or what did you know about your family's history growing up?
1: Yeah, not very much, actually. Mm. So, you know, I I remember growing up and being a child and going to the shops with my mother and um, shop assistants trying to serve me separately, even as quite a young child, because Mm. it just didn't make sense to them that this little brown girl with really frizzy hair would be with this white, straight-haired blue-eyed woman Um, and that was confusing as a child because that was my mum and that's all I knew Um, and then you know obviously my father being Aboriginal he always identified um, but came from a family that wasn't politically active Um, he had a lot of siblings and you know when he was growing up children were still being actively removed and so you know their Aboriginal mother used to say if anyone asks to say that you're Spanish background Mm -hmm. so that she didn't lose any of her kids and fortunately she didn't and actually I had an auntie on you know my dad's side who went to her grave, still saying that to people. Mm. But that wasn't the case with my dad, so I was really lucky. And obviously, the older I got, the more I did start to question my identity. Um, I always knew I was adopted. I was always very loved, so I wasn't really... Actively searching for anything in particular, but obviously, as I sort of became a teenager and started to mix with people, you know, blackfellas um, in Adelaide, I started to realise that I didn't know the answer to the question you just asked me, yeah. and I really had to start doing that work. And, you know, there's been times where that's been really confronting and really mm. challenging, and, you know, fortunately, the majority of blackfellas have been, in, you know, because of our history, incredibly generous and kind and inclusive but not everybody and sometimes that's been really hard to deal with and I think it's had impacts on my confidence and my sense of what I can legitimately do and how I participate in some things but as I said I've had a lot of encouragement and a lot of support from a lot of you know senior Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people so I've been really lucky.
0: Yeah so I mean, considering that and also the fact that your, your dad wasn't exactly politically active, um, but you've been so um, at the forefront, you know, committed to working for our community and, and being a really prominent voice in that across your career, was there a particular turning point where you found yourself kind of falling into um, a political sense of self and, and when did you find your voice in that sense?
1: I think it occurred to me when I was about 18 or 19, I remember walking down the street and just thinking it's more important to do what's right than it is to be popular. And uh, so I've been quite successful at making myself unpopular ever since. So I, I distinctly remember that moment. And then I guess I, as I started my work life, my first job out of high school was... An administrative job in the state public service in Adelaide um, that I was terribly suited to and I had no confidence and there was, you know, it wasn't exactly a safe environment. You know, I definitely experienced racism in that workplace and I was terrified of, you know, messing up and, you know, it made me disinclined to ask questions and ask for help. So I think it was then as a sort of 17, 18 year old that I thought I've got to connect with the local Aboriginal community. So I started looking for jobs working in community, and I got a job working as a receptionist for a program that ran programs for young Aboriginal offenders. Mm. And, you know, that really spoke to my sense of social justice as well. So the content was really enriching, and, you know, that was really, I guess, my first introduction. And then I stayed in Aboriginal organisations for period of time and then I ended up in a feminist organization so I guess that's when my understanding of intersectionality and the impact of that really hit and that was in my early 20s and then I started studying at uni part-time and my whole world exploded and I had more thoughts than I knew what to do with and was really starting to process the identity question you know I think for a long time I'd put so much down to being, you know, an Indigenous Australian when actually I then started to realise how much of it was gender-related and mm. gender-specific as well and really trying to understand how they intersected and how to respond to that, that dynamic, I suppose, for myself going forward.
0: That's a lot of massive questions to end up kind of feeling confronted with in your 20s. Um, I know I've gone through exactly the same thing being in my 20s and that whole finding your place in the world, I mean, you've... Yeah, you've had a really extensive career in a lot of different areas. Did you ever think you'd end up at the AFL? No, yeah. I did not. <laughs> um, I didn't think I'd end up doing
1: a lot of the things I've done. Mm. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm sort of entirely lacking in qualifications and because I never finished my degree because um, I always worked full-time, studied part-time and then work just took over and it just became impossible to get that done. I regret that now. wish I'd, um, you know, committed that time for myself really but you never know, it's never too late. Yeah. Uh, I, but I think really having the opportunities to use your voice but also a lot of opportunities to be a listener. Mm. So I was very fortunate at a young age to be um, invited into rooms with senior Aboriginal and Torres the Islander leadership and, you know, if it was getting the coffee, I was happy to do that. Um, but, you know, very quickly, sitting there, listening, absorbing, watching, uh, really helped me start to form my own voice. So I think that's one of my big learnings, that using your voice is always important, but it's also really important to be a listener. Mm. And um, I'm so grateful for the people that invested in me at that time, had the patience to answer all my annoying questions, um, my basic questions being so green and being so new. I had so, so much to learn and I still do, but yeah, I have been really fortunate. Mm.
0: So you came to the AFL in 2016. You the third ever woman to be. I that was exec? the second, second at the time. So second yeah. at the time and yeah. first ever Indigenous person. Correct. So, do you want to say what your your role is? So, I'm the general manager of inclusion
1: and social policy, which was a new role as well. So, responsible not just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues, but also gender, sexuality, transgender, um, increasingly um, disability. Um, so, yeah, anything that really relates to all forms of discrimination Mm -hmm. and really being the sort of key advisor on how we improve the capacity of our code to be as inclusive as we want to be. Mm. We say we're a game for for everyone, um, but obviously that comes with some challenges and you know how do we how do we really live those values? And I guess my job is to work with everyone in the industry to achieve that. I don't have an operational role, so any success I have is because people in the industry are doing the work. Um, so, you know, it's a real privilege to work with our leadership, our players um, and the staff to, you know, to make those changes to continue to improve our game and how we, you know, how we get it done.
0: Mm. So was that role, do you think, almost um, saying it was new when you were the first person to hold it, um, I guess it's undeniable that the context for the sport at the time was just post what happened to Adam Goods, and I guess racism within the sport was very much still in the media did that role kind of come as a response to that and and I guess it was just before the AFLW League as well so is that how that came about?
1: Um, I'm not sure I mean there was the departure of um, Jason Misford an Aboriginal man who'd been at the AFL for over a decade so he had departed about six months before I came so I imagine he left a big gap Mm. um, in relation to all of those things so that was part of it and also yeah um, Gillan knew that he had AFLW coming around the corner and I I don't think I was barely aware of it actually but I'd spent some time in women's policy um, in South Australia so I think that sort of opened up the conversation that Gil and I had about what my role could potentially be and after working on the recognised campaign I was definitely ready to you know engage other passions that I have and care about including, you know, gender equality. So I was really excited at the opportunity to do a whole range of things really broadly, but without question racism is something that I care deeply about and will always want to include in whatever it is that I'm doing.
0: Mm. How do you think the sports attitude towards the kind of responsibility they have in managing the racism? I guess, you know, obviously on the field, but there's the kind of added element of what happens on social media pages of mm. particular clubs and the vilification that we see in just about every code of sport, unfortunately, of players. Mm. Um, yeah, how does how do you deal with that? I, and what does the sport see as their responsibility? So, um,
1: as far as we know, the AFL was the first sporting code in the world to have a racial vilification policy. Wow. Um, so, that was over 20 years ago and that really stemmed from... Um, the Michael Long, Damien Monkhurst incident and people like Michael McLean and uh, Shay Cockatoo Collins, Gilbert McAdam, Nikki Winmar. All of those collective experiences led the AFL to realise that they needed a policy to deal with these issues. So we've got a really strong history in relation to fronting into them. And, you know, that's by virtue of you know, what has happened on field, I suppose, and the large cohort of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander players who've just excelled at this game and, um, you know, make me really proud and sometimes quite smug um, (laughs) to see that sort of success. So, you know, I think it was something we always knew we needed, but certainly social media has changed that landscape significantly. It's really challenging. At the end of the day, we're a sporting code. We're not the police, we're not the law, there are limitations on our jurisdiction in terms of what we can do, but... I'm really confident about the will and determination of the code to continue to address these issues. Um, one of the things that we've initiated even before the Adam Goods documentaries came out was to review our vilification code. When it started, it was a code dealing with racism and religious vilification, mm-hmm. and now it deals with all forms of vilification. So we're reviewing that at the moment, and sometime this year we'll be releasing a report with recommendations around how we can tighten up that, policy how we can deal with the greater scope of avenues that racist people have to be racist Um, they're targeting our players our players are at work it offends them it offends their teammates it offends their clubs it offends the afl Mm. and um, we've got a responsibility to be as vigilant on these issues as we can but also realizing that you know Education, people often say, well, you know, the key is education. Education is really important, but education doesn't always change the attitudes and beliefs of people. So you have to have standards and instruments in place that accept that and do everything we can to support people and also reward those awesome people who come to our games, who when they see or hear... Something inappropriate that they are reporting it on our mm. um, antisocial behaviour um, phone numbers, and you know picking up the phone and saying I don't want to see this either. So I do still and am- do have optimism about where we're going and, you know, I really congratulate the player-led responses, which I really think have come partly from the reflection of where Adam Goods was let down. Mm. So I think people weren't sure what to do and how to handle it, but I feel like we've all learned a lot and reflected a lot since then. So, mm. yeah, I, you know, I feel like it's something we do and have to do together, have to be absolutely vigilant on.
0: Yeah, and I think particularly having both the final quarter and the Australian dream come out where we'll look back on that as a moment where the country had a mirror held up to it and mm. how we treat um, successful Aboriginal people across the board. Um, Correct. Which is, it is what it is. So, I mean, I think that just hearing all this kind of stuff, it's, it's quite amazing because, um, you know, we talk about sport and, and um, our successful Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, sportsmen and women and how a lot of the time, you know, that's our number one example of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander success, right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, I am the daughter of a former NRL player. So, I, you know, my example of Indigenous success was the same thing that yeah. we all thought, you know. Yeah. But a lot of the time, you know, our girls were left out of that and, you know, my sister and I wanted to be Cathy Freeman growing up even though neither of us could run (laughs) Uh, but it was because we weren't we didn't think we would be able to play professional rugby league even though that's changed which is is amazing so now we have the AFLW league as well which is producing these amazing role models and you're obviously very passionate about gender equality as well what have you seen the response to these female players and do you see little girls turning up to the game with the jerseys? Like, what's it like? Yeah, we, we do. Um,
1: and I think, you know, families have always come to the footy and – um, but the number of families with lots of children and young children in particular coming to AFLW games is mind-blowing sometimes. And I think one of the biggest changes is once upon a time when you left the ground, you'd see a father and son kicking a footy to each other. Now you see fathers kicking footies to their daughters and you know mothers and daughters kicking footies to each other and just groups of girls kicking footies to each other at any age, at any capacity. Um, just seeing it as a viable option and something that they can participate in, whether they want to be elite players or just enjoy the game and the ball and what they can do with it. So um, you definitely see and feel um, a greater sense of inclusion and, um, I guess, excitement and joy that has come with AFLW, um, the fact that, you know, we've got quite an eclectic, support a base of people who may not have felt that AFL was the place that they wanted to go but they're really enjoying AFLW and I've certainly heard um, a number of Aboriginal people tell me that they really like the community feel of going to AFLW games um, which can be quite different if you're going to the MCG and there's a hundred thousand people there you know that takes on a whole other vibe and life of its own which is uh,
0: equally exciting but also very different. So, the AFL W League starts before the normal season, doesn't it? You're going to have to help me out because I'm a bit of an AFL noob. I I'm, have a feeling this conversation might almost convert me. <laughs> um, but so – and, and it, how does it run? Like it's a shorter – Yeah, so
1: this year for the first time we've got 14 teams. Amazing. Yeah, so we've got four more teams coming in this year. So they're very excited and they've been waiting and preparing Mm. patiently in the background for some time. And, you know, obviously it's our hope that all the clubs will have women's teams eventually. So the women's game is actually going to cross over into the men's season for the first time this year as well. So the women's finals series will be played just as the men's season starts. So there'll be some crossover there. And yeah, we've got 14 teams and, you know, that means 14 different supporter groups. Um, You know, the women play in a sort of uh, a setting where they don't necessarily all play each other, but you sort of have different conference groups and the final series will run out of that. Um, One of the great things about AFLW is that we get to play on grounds that don't typically get an AFL game. So, you know, they're a bit smaller and sometimes they've been too small, um, (laughs) which is a really great problem to have. And what we're really trying to do is make sure that we build the game in a way that is sustainable, not necessarily completely modelled on the men's game, because that's not necessarily the benchmark. Mm. What we want to do is create a game that women love to play, know that it's going to be around for a long time and um, continues to grow and build um, so that we get the same scope of audience size that the men's game currently enjoys.
0: Mm. What is your, I guess, just personally, um, what's your goal or or what's the next step that you want to drive in the the AFL in their inclusion? Um, Obviously making leaps and bounds, with the AFLW, even though there's there's a way to go? And um, what do you think is the next step for for you guys?
1: Look, I think what we need to see, both with women, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, people from all abilities, you know, we have blind football, we have uh, wheelchair football. Um, we need to see uh, that diversity of people playing our game reflected in the governance and administration of the game. Um, it's really, you know, our code has been so fortunate to have, you know, large numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people excel at the highest level, but we haven't seen that reflected in other parts of the game. So whether it's broadcasting and having commentators and people from diverse backgrounds calling games, commentating on games, running football clubs, leading club boards, all of those sorts of things. So I think that's the next frontier. That's where, you know, having people from diverse backgrounds in decision making roles mm. is absolutely critical. And it's part of making sure that you have some change that is sustainable. I think we've all seen big changes in so many different institutions in our country, but sometimes they only last a season or two. They last for a period of time while that's the top of mind issue. And then that might fall away because the people championing that have moved on to something else Mm. or they've left that institution. So I, I firmly believe that the decision-making roles is where we need to see that. We definitely need to see it in coaching and umpiring as well. And, you know, and I'm talking for women, you know, women coaching the men's game as well as the women's game and all of those challenges we can see really clearly and we're preparing for and working towards already.
0: Mm. So what obstacles have you or how have you overcome obstacles throughout your career to to get to this executive role? Because it's exactly right. That's a huge gap that we see across the board in all industries is, um, you know, particularly women and even more so Aboriginal women are very rarely in executive roles anywhere. So, I mean, obviously that takes a lot of hard work and I'm sure many hurdles. How how do you overcome those and um, what would be your advice to someone who might be trying to go down the same path? Well, you know, for me, as
1: I said earlier, you know, mentors, really reaching out to people who can teach you things, um who will, you know, take you under their wing, take you to those meetings that you wouldn't ordinarily get to be in just so you can observe. Um, I think sometimes there's pressure to, if you identify yourself as as someone with ambition, to do things that, you know, might typically not be considered your right. You can feel a lot of pressure to sort of jump, leapfrog in there overnight. For me, it was a long, steady Journey, and it still feels like that. Mm. You know, I don't feel totally evolved. I know that I still have a lot to learn. That I have shortcomings. That there are areas where I'm not. You know, I can't tick that box and say, "Well, I've." You know, I'm highly competent in everything. Um, And I think that's one of the things that sometimes holds us back. So you don't have to be perfect or have excelled at everything before you put your hand up. I think you need to be available. You've got to work hard. I think you have to listen. I think it's really important to read, to be aware of the diversity of opinion and not just the people that echo your own sentiment. Mm. Um, that has taught me a lot, being able to to do that, not because I'm going to be converted, but just because it helps you understand how to refine your own arguments, your own position. Um, but yeah, for me, it's I feel like I'm still on that road and, um, you know, I don't know when I'll decide that I've achieved everything I can but really pleased with what I've been able to achieve at the AFL and it's only because I'm working with people that have that will Mm. who've said, yeah, we need someone there and, um, you know, they're prepared to support my leadership Mm. and, you know, I think it's easy to think, well, you know, it's because an individual gets it done. But the thing is, it takes a lot of people. I've had a lot of close friends who um, sharing that journey with them has been invaluable. Mm. You know, while they're doing their work in their stream, um, being able to share those experiences and supporting each other, because as you probably already know, you know, our communities can be pretty fierce, can be quite competitive, and our systems often set us up to be competing with each other. And so it's so important, I think, to have that trusted group of allies Mm. and, um, you know, I've made my mistakes along the way. But, I'm you know, I wouldn't be where I am without the love, support and encouragement of my peers, younger women that I've mentored who still support me, who, you know, we have a a really equal kind of relationship, giving advice to one another. Mm. So all of those things combined Mm. and obviously support from family is invaluable
0: too. Who you surround yourself with is paramount really. You said Right at the beginning of our conversation, that you've you don't care about people liking you, and you've made, um, in your opinion, some people not like you. Um, and obviously, like you said, our community can be quite fierce um, and let you know what they think. So how how do you manage that? Because when there's a kind of negativity, whether it's you've heard someone's had this conversation about you, or if it's online and things like that, I mean. For me, I try my hardest not to let it affect me, but particularly when it comes from community, it hurts. Yeah, it does. So how do, you, how do we manage that?
1: Yeah, look, I don't know. I mean, uh, trial and error, I guess. I think, um, you know, at different times it affects me differently. Um, you know, certainly that idea that, it, you know, it doesn't matter if you're not popular. Um, of course, it affects me. You know, I don't want people to not like me. know, you can spend a lot of time trying to understand what's behind it. You can spend a lot of time trying to correct things that might avoid that situation. But I think as you grow and experience, um, hopefully so does your self-confidence. And, you know, I think if you look back and reflect on what you would do differently, I think that's really important because we don't all get everything right all the time. And uh, I've certainly made mistakes. But at the same time, when I look back at things that I've done, things I've been criticised for, um, sometimes the source of those criticisms aren't people that I would necessarily model myself on in any case. Um, but, yeah, it does it does hurt. And I think it's just something we've all got to be mindful of. Um, once Someone asked me, a younger woman asked me once, you know, um, she was reflecting on the number of, older women who had been quite oppressive of her and and she was really, really struggling and she said, I, I just don't want to turn into that myself. And mm. I said, well, what I've tried to do is actively mentor younger women mm. so that that becomes habit and I feel like that is a good way to balance it out. And I think, you know, knowing who you can trust and talk to, I think taking care of our mental health is incredibly important. Mm. Um I was diagnosed with depression a long time ago mm-hmm. and it's something I still ma- manage. You know, I can't put it down just to dealing with negativity from, you know, people who, you know, find me, you know, difficult or a problem but um, it certainly has played a part and managing that well um, and understanding how to do that mm-hmm. is is key and I think... You know, in this day and age where I think we talk about mental health far more openly, it's important to explore ways to look after your own mental health Mm. Um, because the reality is I don't think it's ever a problem that goes
0: away. Mm, No. No matter how old you get. Yeah, it's a journey. Yeah. I guess um, just my last couple of questions would be around what is your message to, I guess, non-Indigenous Australia or even just Australians who aren't from a diverse background and we're talking about wanting to see that diversity in the sport of AFL, what is their role in, in supporting that? I mean, I'm sure it's about those conversations that they're having at games or, you know, what, what is your message to them? Look, I think we see great examples
1: of that contribution already, um, You know, it's really important if you see something that isn't okay to call it out and not wait for the person who's been vilified to do it. That's incredibly important. And, you know, as I said before, we do have people reporting that in. Um, That is a demonstration of great support and faith and belief Um, and it means that it's one less thing for us to have to do ourselves. I think, um, you know, letting the code, their, their club... their their favourite players know that the AFL taking a stand on these things, as we frequently do, is welcomed and valuable and important to them. Just reinforcing that behaviour, I think, is the simplest way to be a good ally in relation to those sorts of outcomes. And I think also being prepared to educate yourself. So if you're not sure about why we're doing something or why we'd get involved in this cause or that cause, you know, you can always get in contact with us and ask those questions and get that clarity. Do some reading and, you know, take on board yourself the responsibility for exploring you know, the facts about what's going on and why these things are important. I think increasingly we're seeing our playing group in particular speak out about what's important to them, um, which is really, really special. And, you know, as you were referred to before, the final quarter and the Australian Dream, we're so lucky to have those films uh, I think they are I've said many times they're a gift to the nation mm. to to really do the time to take the time to reflect on those things and to think about what you do differently the number of people I've met who said they would do things differently if it happened now on reflection mm. um, I think they're genuine comments and you know I like to think we don't have to define ourselves by our worst moments or the times that we didn't use our voices, um, but there's always going to be another opportunity and we need to take it. Mm.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. I guess my only other question is, who, who's the team or the player to look out for in the AFLW season this year? Do you have a one to watch? One to watch?
1: Well, I always love watching Chelsea Randall and I hope that she's um, fit and ready to play. She's an amazing leader on field. Um Daniel Ponta. Um, also really amazing and there's a great story about a young Aboriginal woman from the Northern Territory who's been uh, recruited to Collingwood, uh, Michaela Roberts. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a young mum a couple of kids. I've seen
0: about her. She yeah. looks amazing. Yeah,
1: so I'm, I'm really excited. So I hope she has a great year because it must be a massive sacrifice mm-hmm. to move from Darwin down to Melbourne and, um, Have you know. Have to experience that
0: Melbourne winter. Yeah, I-
1: exactly. <laughs> well, we're not, you know, know, AFLW doesn't really have to play in the cold, uh, more so the heat. But um, so that might advantage Michaelia, but I'm really Mm. excited to see um, what she gets a chance to do. Um, And yeah, I I just hope that they all know that they're um, setting a great example for women and girls everywhere. And, you know, I think they're all amazing. And yeah, I'm excited to watch them, especially these new teams coming through.
0: Yeah, well, we'll be. I'll be watching, cheering on and coming up. You know what? I'm going to have my own ones to watch for next season. I always find myself thinking I'm an expert after I've watched a few things. So, yeah, thank you again.
1: No, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Titters for Titters. If you like this show, please share it with someone you know and leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. If you want to see more from Titters for Titters, Follow us on Instagram by searching Titters for Titters. Titters for Titters is produced by Hannah Bowman and Leah Porges. I'm Molly Silver. See you next time.